Welcome to a special programme about a difficult subject. You may have seen the recent BBC trilogy of documentaries called Football's Darkest Secret. It's a tough watch, chronicling the abuse of children who wanted nothing more than to follow their dream of being the next Kevin Keegan, George Best or Bobby Moore by the people they looked up to and trusted. This brings me to my guest today, Mike Smith. He's a former North Wales police officer, having served 15 years with the force. He's married to Julie, a local politician and community activist, and they have three children. He's an award-winning football coach who cares deeply about the welfare of the children he looks after. Mike appears to have the perfect life, but he's had to overcome and to some extent is still coming to terms with the same issues dealt with in that BBC documentary. He's a former ambassador for the Offside Trust and he first entrusted his story to me four years ago in one of the bravest interviews I've ever been involved in. Mike, a survivor himself, has agreed to tell his story for Sound Radio Wales listeners as he still campaigns for and supports those children, now adults, whose lives were destroyed by paedophiles posing as football coaches. He also speaks about the effects the abuse had on his life, both physical and mental, and how telling his story has helped both him and other victims try to come to terms with what happened. Some listeners may find parts of this story difficult to listen to, especially parents, but stick with it because it's an important story with an important message of hope. My name is Jez Hemming and this is Mike's story. Welcome Mike and, and thanks for coming to speak to us. Hi Jez, thanks for having me. To start really, I think to, to set the scene for people, um, and, and we've discussed this at length before, but tell me about your, your early years in, in North Wales and before you left for Ireland, I think it was up to about nine wasn't it? Yeah, I left for Ireland when I was nine years old. Um, prior to that, I lived in Llandudno with my parents. Um, I was an only child. I lived every day for, for football. That's all I did from the age of five. As soon as I could kick a ball up until, well, well still recently, all I ever thought about at that age was um, kicking a ball around, really. Um, as I said, I lived in Llandudno. I went to school at Lloyd Street. Um, and I had a, yeah, a really happy childhood in, uh, in Llandudno. T- tell me about the football then. At that age, I was, there wasn't teams like there are nowadays. I, I played for school and um, groups of friends. We used to make our own teams and play against different streets from Clandino on the Oval. Or, but there wasn't organised leagues in those days. But even then, just playing on the Oval, I, I, knew, I knew I could play. And I thought, this is what I want to do. You know, that, was, that was what I was going to do. I was determined from the age of seven I was going to be a footballer. What position did you play? Um, <laughs> on the pitch. I, could, I wanted to play anywhere I could, but I, I was um, I had a knack for scoring goals, so I, I naturally played up front. So, so it was an idyllic sort of childhood in a seaside town. You had all the the, the, the graces and the airs of the of the, the promenade and the pier and the, the open spaces, the orm, and and you couldn't have wanted for anything, I suppose. Really, no. Um, as you say, it was you know, absolutely perfect childhood growing up in uh, in London with the, with everything it has to offer. Tell me a little bit about your folks. Um, uh, well, my dad is, is a local lad, born and bred on Council Street, landed now, big family. Um, my dad, unfortunately, he lost his parents at a very young age. I think he was seven when he lost his mum and just a young teenager when he lost his dad. Um, and his older brother and older sister took care of him. Um, so he's a local lad. My mum came over from Dublin when she was, I think she was around about 17, 16, 17, to work in the hotels and... I think it was planned for a summer, but she met my dad and never went back. And then uh, at 19, I came along. So uh, yeah, she was a young mum. But they were, you know, I've got great memories of the two of them together. They were, it was a happy life as far as I remember. And then towards sort of the age of eight or nine, things changed a little bit, didn't they? Yeah, um, mum and dad split up for whatever reason. I mean, it's not, you know, unusual, is it, nowadays? Or, or even then, really. Um, they split up. Um, my mum wanted the support of her family, understandably, and um, she decided to move back to to Ireland, taking me with her to Dublin. Which, to be fair, wasn't a massive deal for me because I'd gone over two or three times a year with her anyway. I knew all the family. I had friends there, so you know it wasn't obviously leaving my dad here and moving over there was a big step. But overall, it was you know, it was relatively normal to me. Mike, before the break, we set the scene of, of your early childhood and, and we discussed your life in North Wales up to 
moving across to Dublin on, on the breakup of your parents' marriage. So we're now in 1984, aren't we? And you, you've moved to Ireland. And, and as you said before, you already had links there. And, and importantly, links with a football team over there, didn't you? Yeah, because when I went over, as I said before, there was no teams here. But over there, there was a full schoolboy league. And um, where my where my mum's family were from, there was a, a good schoolboy team based there. And whenever I went over, I used to play and train with them. Um, they loved loved having me over because, as I said, I was a decent player. And shortly just before I um, moved to, to Ireland, they had a cup final. Um, and they wanted me to play in it, so... This coach that we'll talk about in more detail, he, off his own back, came over, um, picked me up and took me back to play in this final and then brought me back home to Wales again. So I was made to feel special from then. They wanted me to play in a cup final. I was nine or ten years old. So naturally, when I moved over there, I picked up with them straight away and then slotted into the team. So so you were made to feel special. What was the name of the team? It was called Begsborough. In uh, Cabra West in Dublin. So you're made for, to, to, to feel special, and at that point you couldn't have imagined that there was anything more sinister in, in that relationship. Oh, absolutely not. As I said, um, I was just made to feel like I was wanted as part of a team. Um, I'd never experienced playing for a team before, um, and I was made to feel really special and that like I had a lot of talent. So you've, you've moved to Dublin, you've joined the team, they were there ready, ready and waiting for you. So yeah. you're, you're happy, a young footballer, stars in your eyes. How did things change? Um, not long after I started playing, I suppose, I, I got a lot of special attention. Um, the coach used to turn up at my house and spend time with me and my mum, um, take me out to places. I'd turn up with new football boots and which I just thought was all part and parcel of playing for this team. Um, and uh, as I said, being talented, I thought I was just singled out for special attention for that reason. But um, it, it sort of progressed. He, he'd take me home after training in his car, um, pretend to reach across me, but accidentally touch me um, between my legs. And looking back now, you know, I, I think, why didn't I spot this straight away? Why didn't I punch him in the face? But... It's hard to put myself back in a, in a child's brain. Um, I look at my daughter now, she's nine, and she's tiny. You know, I've got to try and imagine myself at that age. I didn't know what was happening. Um, I believed it was an accident. He'd make a joke of it. Um, and then it progressed to sort of play fighting and, or grappling with me. And then Where would this happen? Um, in the car, mainly. Or uh, he started then not just bringing me home after training, but he'd take me back to his house. My mum was on her own with me. Um, she worked a couple of jobs. So I guessed, and my mum guessed he was he was helping out. He was married with, with um, a small child at that time. So it, it seemed fine. So he used to take me back to his house and his wife would be working late or she wasn't there. or And, yeah, he'd, he'd do that in his house, messing about. And as I said, it would be play fighting, but... Looking back, it was more to it then. He'd um, accidentally touch me. Or... That's how it started, really. Okay. Do you want to go on and explain how, how it continued? <clears throat> um, it progressed then to sort of, in the car, he'd, he'd slide his hands down my pants um, and then progressed to grabbing my hand and putting mine on his. Um Again, it's hard to put myself back in that situation, but I was nine years old. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, I felt, as I said, I thought I was being singled out for special attention, and then I thought, well, is this what I... He was, to me, he was the... You know, I've left out the fact that all the time he was constantly praising me, praising my footballing talent, telling me I was going to make it, and he would help me. He had contact here and there. Um, so he was my dream maker, if you like. Um, and sort of jumping forward a little bit, I suppose, but I had a genuine affection for him, I suppose, because he looked after me when my mum wasn't there. Um, he became a bit of a father figure. And I looked to him for, um, well, for different things, really, for the needs that I had to progress in football. 
he was the one that would make my dream come true. Looking back, it's it's almost archetypal <coughs> grooming, isn't it? Well, looking back, I was classically groomed. You know, with, with, with the gifts I was getting, with the treatment I was getting, I was made to feel so special. Obviously, in my head, it was all because I was a great footballer. And then I started thinking, all these guys that are playing on the TV, my heroes, this is obviously... They've had to do this as well. So it's obviously... And I convinced myself, this is, this is what happens if you, if you want this dream, then... People like this who are going to make the dream come true. That's what you have to go through. It's a familiar tale, isn't it? Unfortunately. Yeah. What kind of things did he say to you? Apart from the praise, at, at some point, you may have said something or he may have felt that you might say something. What, what did he say anything to you at all? I think in the first um, year or so, there was, you know, it, it was, as I said, it was touching and forcing my hand on his and it, it never really progressed and I, I don't think he felt that there was any danger. He knew that I was nine or ten at that stage and I was unlikely to say anything. Um, obviously, as the, the abuse got worse, then he used to um, threaten me say look this is our secret you tell anyone and you'll never be a footballer um, your family won't believe you mm. um, I make threats to me sort of you know your family won't believe you um, it'll all be your fault um, if you did tell anyone then you know harm would come to you uh, I can't remember the words he used but he sort of intimated that harm would come to my family if I was to um, to blurt out anything I think that's probably a a good point just to have a, another musical break. You've uh, you've picked another track here. You two, where the streets have no name. Tell us about that. Um, as I said, growing up in Dublin, uh, you two were a, a big Dublin band. And around that time, it was um, the Joshua Tree album. Everyone, everywhere you went in Dublin, people were singing it, you'd hear it in the shops. It was, it was just everywhere. Um, and again, music, as everyone knows, it can be a bit of an escape sometimes. Mike, this is... A difficult thing to speak about. Uh, before the the break, we were talking about um, how the abuse started, but it, it graduated to sexual touching, but it took an even more sinister turn by around 1986, didn't it? Just tell me how things changed. Yeah, it um, progressively got worse and more regular, um, I would say, almost on a daily basis. Um, when it wasn't training, he would turn up and take me out to play snooker or he'd take me to watch a movie or, as I said, to his house. And then he, he worked on a reception desk at a post office, um, a post office building. So it was, a, and I remember there was a desk and there was like a little small cupboard next to this desk. And on Saturday after the games, he worked this inquiries desk and I was in the cupboard. And in between him dealing with people, customers, he would be, he, you know, I would be naked from the bottom down in this cupboard. And he used to, um, in between people coming in, and then he would have me in that cupboard and touch me and and sort of um, expose himself to me and, and eventually <coughs> force himself on me. And, you know, obviously I was probably... 10 of us, but I was 11 then at that stage, 86, yeah, 11 or 12. It was played everywhere, really, wherever we went. It was touching him, forcing my hands, and then eventually forcing himself. <laughs> it's hard to say, but orally. Um, I still remember that feeling of gritting my teeth, but he'd do something to under my chin or to make me lose my grip on my teeth. And, and that was just, yeah, every day. Did you ever get the feeling that this was happening to other children? Um, not at his hands. He spent so much time with me. I don't think, you know, he certainly had other favourites. I mean, I, at the time when when I eventually when the police were eventually involved, um, I gave them some names of other children that could have that I felt he had soft spots for, but none of them ever admitted to anything. How did it affect you personality-wise? Because obviously now you, you you get into 11, coming up to 12, you're going through puberty. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a difficult time for a young man anyway, isn't it? Yeah. How did it affect you? Um, I became withdrawn. Um, I was a quiet, shy lad in those years. I just The only time I came out of myself was on the football pitch. 
Um, as I got a bit older, I started getting a bit sort of naughty, if you like, in school, sort of um, rebelling a bit, or obviously because of things that were going on in my life at that time. Um, Personality-wise, yeah, I, I became quite withdrawn. Um, didn't talk to many people. I had a few friends on, on the street. They were sort of my, my outlet, but... Yeah, as I said, um, I was a bit drawn and uh, no confidence in myself. I, uh, looking back, it, it was part of that grooming process. I became totally reliant on him to do anything. If I wanted to go anywhere, it, it would be him I'd look to to take me places. Talk about going to places, and there was one really pivotal trip, wasn't there, um, in, in 88 for the cup final at Wembley. Yeah. Ex- explain to to us about that. Um yeah, I remember him being told, him telling me that he was taking me to Wembley for the FA Cup final, which is a bit of a dream for any kid, isn't it? You know, I'd watched it on the TV every year. It was a big deal in those days, the FA Cup final. Um, and I couldn't believe it. I was going to go to Wembley. Um, it was 88, Liverpool against Wimbledon. He was a huge Liverpool fan. Um, I was anyone but Liverpool. So I remember... Before I went, I thought it'd be quite funny if I bought a Wimbledon scarf and Wimbledon hat, which I wore on the day, and they won. And on the day itself, you know, it, it was amazing. But um, I'll never forget, we stayed, I remember it vividly, we, we stayed at a place called the Regent Palace, which was in um, Piccadilly Circus. An amazing hotel, it's not there anymore. The building's still there, but it's not a hotel now. Um, beautiful place, and after the game, so we went back there, um, he took me for something to eat, and I thought, well, this is an amazing day. And I, I remember thinking, hopefully nothing happens, or I can just remember it the way it was. But yeah, that night it was, um, well, I don't know, it's, in short, that's the, 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 the first time he raped me. Um, in a hotel room at that hotel. Um, and it wasn't just once, it was sort of, I don't know how many times, it was several times, and I remember... I um, sort of made a break to the bathroom and then... Um, sorry, it's hard to talk about. But, no, it's tea time. Um, so, 88, what was I, 14? Or coming up to 14. And um, I was in the bathroom and there was blood rolling down my legs. And I was in a lot of pain. And I was crying. And it was then that I sort of... Something changed in me. I thought, this can't, this can't be right. This can't be what all these footballers have to go through. And if it is, I don't want to be a footballer anymore. Mm. And I think that's the moment I sort of started falling out of love with the game um, and felt, you know, this just, it can't go on. Something has to, has to change here. I think that's probably a, a good point just to have a, another musical break, isn't it? Um, you, you pick Real Gone Kid, Deacon Blue. Um, as I said before the last one, music has um, that ability to transport you to happier times. Um, I remember going to a concert in... 1988 in September, funnily enough, at the RDS in Dublin. I'd gone to see an Irish band called Hot House Flowers, who I loved at the time. Um, Tracy Chapman was supporting them, Aswad, and then this band, Deacon Bloom, who I'd never heard of. And it was the month before they released Real Gone Kid. So they played it there, they said, this is our new song, it's going to be released. And I just thought, this is amazing, and I fell in love with them. But it's more about the group of friends I mentioned before on the street. We all went because we lived in Dublin. We could go to concerts. We had a fantastic day. And uh, my best friend at the time, Antoinette, was a girl. She lives in Australia now. We often message each other with uh, different Deacon Blue videos and songs because we went everywhere. We went to watch them three or four times after that. But Mike, you made the massive step of deciding to tell someone after that cup final trip in 1988. But it uh, didn't go as you'd planned it, really, did it? No, it was... Um, it was it was hard to to approach anyone. I thought, who can I tell? Um, it was probably a year later, you know, at least eight or nine months. I'd started fighting back a little bit to him. He still was stronger than me, still able to overpower me. So I was still raped on several occasions after that. But despite the fight backs, um, I eventually sort of walked through the church grounds in in Cabra in Dublin. Um, and I knew the priest there. And I thought, I'll wait till there's confession on. Go and sit in the box and I'll tell him during confession. Then he can't tell anyone because it, it's a private thing. And at least I'll get it off my mind. But I went up the church steps and just completely bottled it. Um, 
but it was a decision in my head. I thought, I've made that decision to go there. And what else can I do? Um, I thought about telling all sorts of people, but I never did um, until eventually. I was, as I said before, I started playing acting in school. I was bunking off school, and my PE teacher um, said to me at the beginning of one one day, "Right, all the lads are going to play football." Knowing how much I love football, he felt his punishment would be to make me stand in my bare feet in the middle of a football field and gave me a, a pad and a pen and said, you stand there, you tell me why you're such a waste of space. That's exactly what he said. And I thought, okay, um, I'm going to tell you exactly why I'm misbehaving. I'm going to put it all in this pad. So I think it was about an hour and I must have filled about 25 pages. I basically catalogued everything that had happened to me since I moved from Ireland, from Wales to Ireland. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to give this to the teacher. He'll read it and it'll, it'll be out and something will happen. So he, at the end of that, at the end of the lesson, he took me into the um, office and said, did you write why you're a waste of space? And I said, yeah, um, it's all there. And he looked at it and it, at the top of it, it was entitled Why I'm a Waste of Space. He's read that and he's read the first two lines and then he's just taken the whole thing and ripped it up into little pieces and put it in the bin. How did uh, that make you feel? Um, my heart absolutely sank. I thought, that's my, that's my chance gone. I'm never going to be able to tell anyone. Um, I started crying. I, said, I've, I, I actually said to him, I've done exactly what you asked me to do. I've told you and I've explained everything why I am the way I am at the moment. And he says, right, okay, fine, but it's gone now. Get out. And, yeah, that was hard, hard to take. How old were you at this point? Um, so this would have been about 89, I suppose. So I was coming up to 15, or turned 15, around 15. Um, I said it was a massive blow, but I think later on that day, I thought to myself, I've, I've written it all down once, and... I've, you know, it was a massive step to, to try and tell someone what else can I do? Can I write it down again? So I, I did that. I, I got a copy book and wrote it all down again. Another bloody 20 pages or something. And I put it in an envelope. And I thought, what do I do with this? I was working in a pub at the time, um, just collecting glasses, local pub. Um, and I thought, right, I'm going to go to work tonight and I'll leave that envelope on the mantelpiece with mum on it and that's what I did I left it on the mantelpiece went off to work and in those days there was no mobile phones or anything I'd gone off to work I finished work at probably 11 o'clock at night and I had a little bike I thought I can't go home I can't face my mum or what did you think she'd say? Um, my main concern I think was that what's, what's this rubbish? why are you saying these things or that she wouldn't believe me mm. and I think that was a natural concern when I speak to other people who've gone through it that's the overriding factor is nobody's going to believe me um, so that's what I felt at that time I thought I can't go home so I rode the bike into town into Dublin city centre and I found um, the Piero Club which was a, an amusement on the, on the Ormond Quay and I went in there and I had my tips in my pocket probably about three quid and I played games all night there's video games it was open 24 hours and I think I got back on the bike probably 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, went home and when I got home there was a police car outside um, and I went in and that was the beginning of it all coming out I think it's probably a a good a good time now probably to have a, another break another musical break because we'll, we'll talk about the police and we'll talk about that afterwards I think um, you've picked Freedom George Michael yeah um, it's aptly named because as I said it was around 89 when I spoke to the police um, about a year later I, I, I took a job well it was the summer of 91 I managed to get myself a job as a, a red coat in Butlins I think somebody one of the neighbours worked there and said do you fancy a job and I said yeah and they put me in this position and it it done wonders for me doing that. that. That changed my whole personality, brought me back. You know, I'd gone withdrawn. I, I had no choice but to be a bit extrovert doing that job. So that brought my personality back. Um, 
and that song, it was, if you like, when I went to Mosney, that was my freedom. It was, I'd turned my back on what had happened. I'd come out, I told people it was in the hands of the police, and now it was my turn to, to live my life. Um, and I felt going to Butlins was my freedom. Um, and the, the album, Listen Without Prejudice, was one of my favourites at the time, and this song sort of epitomised my life at that time. And, and before the break, Mike, we discussed you bravely admitting to your mum uh, you'd been abused and the, and the police then became involved. So I'm interested to find out what actually happened to the paedophile who abused you. Yeah, um, I spent weeks speaking to the police. They, they used to come every day. In fact, I still remember the two officers' names. It was a, a guard and a, and a sergeant. They took it um, really seriously and I think it affected them. Um, they actually used to come after work once they finished the shift and come and re- record the statements, they came in plain clothes, so it was not to frighten me. And they were fantastic. Um, and it was them that actually made me want to be a police officer. Um, so that's where I got it from. Um, they were absolutely brilliant. They came every day, cut it into short sections, probably spent an hour every day just taking a statement. Um, so it was weeks and weeks. Um, he was obviously arrested, charged. Um, to my relief, admitted it. Because um, I thought if he denied it, some doubts may creep in, people might not believe me. Thankfully, he admitted it, he was taken to court. I remember being told he was going to court. And then I remember a few days later being told the result. Never the option of, you'll be called to court, or you'll have to give evidence. Because believe it or not, I wanted to. Um, even more so now that I think back. But I remember the police coming to the door, very sort of stern-faced, upset, I think, looking back at it. Um, and they said, he's walked out of court with a two-year suspended sentence and a fine of £100. There were elements of the abuse that you didn't tell the police, though. T- tell me what they were and, and, and tell me why you didn't tell them. Um, I was 16 when I told them. Um, I was a 16-year-old. You don't want to tell anyone you've been raped. Um, particularly living in a in a place like Dublin, Ireland, very Catholic, very religious area. Um, a lot of stigma around that sort of thing at that time. Um, I just felt I was too embarrassed to tell them. Even though it, you know I was a child, 11 or 12, I thought, if I tell people I've been raped, it sounds like I've let that happen. I was deeply ashamed, I suppose, and too ashamed to, to, to tell them. Tell me about the effects that that had on you long term. Because you, you said how you, you got a job as a, a red coat and that brought you out of yourself. Um, but it kind of still lay in the background a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to this day, there's, there's not a day that goes past where I don't have some sort of flashback. Um, it can be a smell or a, a sound or something that would take me back. Um, and particularly at that time, yeah, I was I, I, I struggled to cope with it. It affected me um, mentally more than I knew. Um, affected my, I, I didn't trust anyone. I still don't really, you know. I'm, it's hard to to win my trust. Um, and as I said, yeah, physically, I think long term, it had a hell of an effect. The, the build up of stress over the years and eventually culminated in in a heart attack. Um, when I was just before I was 40 and I put that down to that and I think it's it's just been eating away at me inside that stress for years and years and eventually culminated in a heart attack um, plus over the years you know I had suicidal thoughts many a time um, more than prepared for it you know I'd, you know, I'd planned it a lot of the time um, Did you know why you were feeling like that? Did you, did you link it back to what happened or was it a case of you were getting on with your life but sort of things would get out of control? Yeah, and... No, I didn't really know why I, I, I was feeling like that. Um, now I do, because I, I, I sought help and I've talked about it a lot more. Now I realise why. But at the time, yeah, I was just trying to get on with my life but every now and again. I had to, And I still have these disastrous thoughts. If anything minor goes wrong, this feeling takes over and... It can be something stupid, like watching a programme where a child's being operated on. 
that's my all of a sudden that's my daughter you know I associate every, everything's worst case scenario and I understand now I got a diagnosis of PTSD and it's all interconnected with that and it all comes back to to what happened what I wanted to sort of delve into a little bit was, was the effect that it had on your relationships you, you, you mentioned it was difficult to touch people uh, to trust people but how how did it you know, being romantically involved with someone and, and, and had that kind of relationship, did, did, it, did it put a barrier up for you with things like that? Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I found it hard to, to connect with somebody on a, on a romantic level, on an emotional level. Um, you know, growing up after that happened, I had sort of doubts about my own sexuality. I think that's, from listening to other people, that's normal. I soon realised that, you know, I, I was heterosexual and that that was just part and parcel of how you would feel or the doubts that creep in. And, yeah, I didn't really connect with anyone until until I met my wife. You know, and that, that was sort of the, the deal-breaker for me to think, yeah, this is the one, because I completely trusted her and completely opened up to her, and, yeah, she was probably the first person since. How, how did she react? Um, amazing. Um... I can't remember how long into the relationship it was before I told her, but I told her. And this is, you know, sometimes I might disappear or I might be a bit down, and this is why. And she was amazing. She's been a, a constant support for me. I, she saved me in, you know, in so many words, really. If I hadn't met her, would I have met anyone else that was like her? I don't think so. Um, so, yeah, she's a, she's a big, big influence. Let's go to your fifth song choice. Um, I get a kick out of you, Frank Sinatra, the old crooner himself. Why this one? Uh, the time can be better. We've just spoken about my wife, Julie. Um, as I said, she, she changed my life. She, she saved me, really, and um, helped me to start living my life. This was our wedding song, our first dance. I say dance, I can't dance. Julie danced. I sort of <laughs> strutted around the floor. But again, it's a, it's a great tune. We both love Sinatra, we both love swing music, and um, another happy memory. Listening to Mike describe the horrific abuse he endured over a period of four years between 84 and 88, he also told us about how the after-effects led to ill health as he got older. However, the story took a turn when more stories about the wider abuse of children by football coaches elsewhere hit the news in 2016, almost 20 years after Mike suffered uh, his trials and, and traumas. Mike, explain to me what it was like when you saw the subject raise its head in the media. I think it was, was it November 2016? Yeah. Um, I remember being at home, I was watching Sky Sports News, and they'd said, oh, footballers have come out about abuse, and they played um, a bit of a clip from the Victoria Derbyshire show, um, which was Andy Woodward at the time. And I, th- I don't know, it felt like the roof had caved in on me. Everything came flooding back, listening to him, and I thought... Has somebody written my story, given it to him to read out? Because the story's more or less exactly the same. I followed the story, I followed him, and then a few days later, Victoria Derbyshire again, then had Steve Walters and um, Jay Dunford and Billy on there, and listening to them, and again, the stories are all so similar to mine. And I suppose I'd never really dealt with it it happened 20 years beforehand. I'd sort of put it back to the back of my mind. Uh, I'd never really sought counselling. I'd never talked about it again. And I was watching it, and I was crying. It broke my heart. And I thought, God, if these lads are putting themselves out there, you know, they, they were high-profile footballers, have I got some sort of duty to children, really, to tell mine? Um, again, I thought, you know, but I only played... In Ireland, I wasn't a big high profile, the biggest, you know, I eventually played with Bohemians in the League of Ireland, that's as, the biggest standard that it's got to. Who's going to be interested, really? Um, but I went on Twitter, I found Steve Walters on Twitter, um, I dropped him a Twitter message, and he rang me, and we spent two hours on the phone. Um, I talked, and then we sort of arranged to meet up, and that's how I got involved with the Offside Trust from there. They were, they were like a blanket around me, really. Um, fantastic lads we'd all had this common experience um we understood each other we understood exactly how we felt 
and that's how um, I got involved and I thought well I am going to speak about it then even if I can do some good on a local basis it might not go national because I wasn't high profile but if I can do something locally um, even if one person in, in North Wales comes forward after hearing me say yeah that happened to me then it'd be a massive success and that's when I got in touch with yourself Jez and I, I thought because I knew you through London Football Globe and I thought well if anyone can tell my story then I'll speak to Jess. How did it feel to be I remember it well it, it's one of those jobs I mean we you know there's a lot of stuff that's that's piecemeal for, for journalists to do but occasionally stories like this come up that are quite important very important I remember it well and I remember how nervous you were on the day but how did it actually feel to get it all off your chest and, and out there? Um, looking back at it, during the, the interview when we spoke, it's all a blur to me. Um, afterwards, that feeling of relief, I still remember that. I thought, gosh, that's the first time I've spoken about it with anyone apart from my wife in 20 years. And it did feel good. Then I start, started feeling doubtful, thinking, oh my gosh, when this hits the paper, what's the reaction going to be like? Um, I was worried about, because I'm a coach myself, coaching children, would people think, oh my God, there's something dodgy about him then, because that happened to him, he's going to want to do it to other people. Mm. And uh, Or, really, did that really happen? Or, or what's he doing coming out? He's a policeman, why is he telling everyone about this? Um, I had a lot of doubts of that, but thankfully, after your piece in the paper, it, you know, the reaction was amazing. Um, really, really positive. I then had... I don't know, about eight or nine messages from people who said that it happened to them. Um, I encouraged two people to go forward, which they did. And so, yeah, it was a massive, massive success. So no regrets about doing it? No, absolutely not. Um, no, it was the right thing to do. I'd watched these lads, and as you know now, it, it snowballed with, with the footballers um, into hundreds and potentially hundreds and hundreds that haven't come forward. Um, I felt I had a duty to do it, watching those do it, and I thought, yeah, so no, no, I've got no regrets at all. If anything, it, you know, it's helped me, because since then, I, um, and through the help of the Offside Trust, they put me in touch with Sporting Chance, who um, funded counselling, so I had professional counselling, you know, I really sought help, and I've, I've addressed it. Hmm. And I, I feel if I didn't talk to you about it, or I hadn't come forward at that time, I would never have addressed it, and I'd still be suffering physical health problems. I just wanted to ask you as well because you know you, you you're a coach yourself. You've won an award for coaching from the, from the FAW, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and you're quite passionate about this, aren't you? And, and the welfare of the kids, and and you know, yeah, making sure that they have the best from it. Yeah. And it, it's 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 quite interesting because, like you said, people can sometimes assume that maybe you'd go the other way. Yeah. Um, but but you went the right way with yours. And I'm just interested to, to, to know, how did the, the young lads, because we're talking adolescent boys now, aren't we? Yeah. How did they deal with, with what you had to say? Because it was very public, wasn't it? Well, before it, before it came out, I arranged a meeting with the parents. And I told them what I'd been through and that I was going to go public with it. And I had all their support. They've gone home then and told the kids. And it, it was amazing. You know, the lads were, were great. Um, just... To, it was like a family, I suppose, at that time. We sort of all just stuck together, and they were a massive support to me. Um, and the lads, they never came out and said anything. They don't, do they? But I knew sort of just... I think they were proud of me, if that makes sense. Even at that young age, um, they were proud of me, and, and they must have thought, fair play. You know, that, that, that's our, our gaffer there. He's, he's come out with something brave. And that's how they made me feel, anyway. Let's have a break, and then we'll talk a little bit about the future afterwards. Um, this this song now is Trouble, Coldplay. Yeah. Um, Explain this one. <laughs> it's when my wife was pregnant with our son, Adam. Um, she went into labour, and we, we'd prepared a, just a playlist of all our, her favourite songs to listen to while she was in labour, and, and he was born to this. And we thought, oh, my God, is this going to be... <laughs> is he going to be Trouble? But it turns out he's not trouble at all. He's a great lad. He's uh, 16 now. But this, 
My guest Mike Smith is a survivor having suffered horrific treatment at the hands of a paedophile passing himself off as a football coach in Ireland in the 80s. A former ambassador for the Offside Trust, he's been open about what happened to him, but hopes more people will now come forward as he believes what happened to him could have happened to more young boys in Ireland and, and over here. Mike, your abuser was tracked down, wasn't he, after we did the original story? Yeah, after you um, published the, the story in the Daily Post, I was contacted by um, the Daily Star in Ireland. I was contacted by a few different places, but they particularly took a hold of it and said they wanted to track him down. Um, I didn't know anything about him, really, where he could be, but all of a sudden I had a, a phone call to say we found him. Um, we just need you to confirm it's him. And they sent me a photograph, which blew my mind. I was like, it took everything. Everything seeing him again was horrific in this photograph. Uh, I could only say, yeah, that's definitely him. So they, they found him living in a caravan next door to a, a children's park, which in itself was, is horrific to think of. Um, and he'd lived there 10, 15 years. Um, they interviewed him on the doorstep. He spoke to them. And they published it in the Daily Star. It was front page in the Daily Star. And all he t talked about was the effects it had on him, on his life. Um, he said that, you know, oh, I felt suicidal over the, what I did. I, um, I lost my wife, my family because of this. And it was almost as if it was, you know, all about him. Not once did he say, oh, um, I'm so sorry. Or How did that make you feel? I was livid reading it, and being a being a tabloid newspaper as well, it was sensationalised a little bit. You know, I wasn't happy with the headline, and was, I can't even remember what it was, but it was it wasn't in great taste. I wasn't too happy with it, and then his photographs splashed all over it. Yeah. Um, but it did get the message out over there. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I was uh, glad that they'd found him, that they'd exposed him. But yeah, his reaction just didn't make me feel good at all because I thought. He'd walked free from court and went about his life. In those days, there was no sex offenders register or anything, so he'd literally walked without court, free man, a hundred pound lighter. But I wasn't free, you know. I, I sort of, I had a life, but well, I still have. I've got a life sentence of those memories of what he did to me, and he didn't, in my opinion, hasn't served any justice at all. He's just got away with it, really. Mm. So he went on living his life, and yeah, he split up from his wife and children. But is that? <laughs> that happens, doesn't it? Yeah. It it wasn't um, the only unusual occurrence, was it? That that, that came from that act? because you got a you actually got a message from his daughter, didn't you? Yeah, she contacted me through um, a Facebook message. Um, I think I shared that message with you at the time. I think you've seen it. It's short, but apologising for her father. Um, told me I could contact her any time I wanted to speak to her. Oh, sorry, the family were, and please know, Mike, that none of us had any idea that that was going on or that was happening to you. Um, and, yeah, it was a really welcome message. It was short, but, I, yeah, it meant a lot. Mm. Mm. Why do you think it, it is so important that people hear this story? Um, some people have trouble, don't they, listening to difficult conversations like this? yeah. Absolutely. But you, you've been steadfast in your desire, and, and, and a lot of the, the victims of the the football abuse have been steadfast in getting those stories out there. Why? Why is it so important? I think if people don't listen to these type of things and, nothing, and ignore it, nothing's ever going to change. Um, it's almost accepting it. You know, this thing, yeah, these things are happening, but I don't want to know about it. Um, yeah, believe me, I, I'd much prefer not to be talking about this. I'd much prefer it not to happen to me, but it has. So as I said before, I think I've got a duty of care to, to kids and parents now going into any sport, not just football, or any sort of environment where there's coaches or there's adult people looking after children. And by the way, majority of which are absolutely brilliant people, but there's always an odd one here or there. And it's just to make people more aware that these things happen. I've got no doubt it's still going on somewhere. Mm. Um, but my aim of talking about it is just for parents and children to be aware that it could happen. 
and for anyone that has happened to 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 give them to give them a voice really to say he's done it it's turned out all right maybe i can talk about it as well but as i said if nobody listens or they ignore it then things don't change do you think that's why it managed to stay shoved under the carpet for so long because people found it an uncomfortable subject yeah um i still believe that it's shoved under the carpet a little bit in certain places i think part of my hope of that story coming out in ireland was that it would open the floodgates as it did here when andy and steve and, and billy that came forward it opened the floodgates so many hundreds came forward um after my story broke in ireland i think it, there was a bit of a deathly silence afterwards uh, I'm not aware of many people coming forward after I know there was a swimmer, Karen Leach, who I've spoken to. Um, she has a bit of a campaign over there, but still it's um, there's not many people coming forward. Now, Dublin's a, a lot bigger city than locally here, and it, it, it's impossible in my head that it didn't happen to anyone else. Mm. Impossible, not necessarily with my abuser, but there must have been others. So I'm hoping that, um, that they somehow hear about it and have the strength to come forward so what do you intend to do now then with that in mind um recently after being watching football's darkest secret and talking to them i know the lads personally because i've spent a lot of time with them um a lot of them managed to get justice in the end um obviously dean radford didn't get his own justice but he sort of got right justice through the other lads being a witness for those um i feel i've never had that justice um I feel I never got to tell the story in full because of my own embarrassment. And it's sort of my intention now. Um, I haven't taken any steps to do it yet. But it's my intention to launch a bit of a campaign in Ireland through different people to get people in Ireland to come forward, to talk about it more. And I'm hoping to speak to the Garda about maybe going through it again and seeing if I can um, get some justice. Away from from this subject now, just generally with life how do you feel about life now and, and what would be your message to people who perhaps have been burying this for years and maybe feel that it's something that they they can't deal with what would you say to them i'd say try and take heart from everyone that has come forward um you were all the lads and myself lead normal lives um, my my own life is is a very happy one. I'm happily married. I've been with Julie for 26 years. Um, we've got three amazing children. Um, my eldest is three years into a, a degree in medicine. She she'll soon be a doctor. And my youngest girl is the Grace is the happiest girl in the world. Um, and Adam is your typical 15 year old boy, but happy, polite, and a good good lad. And we we, we live a, a happy life um, despite. Everything that happened to me, I've come through the other end. Um, talking about it helped, helped a lot because it it made me go and get the help that I needed. And I'm, I'm I know my voice is a bit shaky today, and I'm a bit emotional, but I, I'm I'm happy. I'm at ease with it. I'm at peace with myself, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying life again. It happened, but it doesn't define you. Exactly. I'm, I I don't class myself as a victim. Um, I think survivor is the best word for it. Um, it happened it doesn't define me as you say um, what it does do is make me more determined to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else Mike song 7 it's called This Is The One by the Stone Roses so why'd you pick this one? happy happy times um, my love of football is is huge my son's love of football is huge we both love Manchester United we go often to Old Trafford, and I don't know whether you know this, but it's, it's the walk-on song from Man United. Um, this is what the teams come out to. So when this song starts and we're in the stands at Old Trafford, we look at each other and the tension builds. You know the teams are coming out, and it's um, yeah, it's just one of those moments that I share with my son. That I just you know, second to none. The FA have commissioned a dedicated NSPCC helpline for adults who were abused in childhood within the football industry from grassroots to Premier League. If you would like to speak to somebody, the free NSPCC helpline for guidance and support is available 24 hours a day. And that's on 0800 023 2642. That's 0800 023 2642. 
You can contact Survivors Manchester. That's at www.survivorsmanchester.org.uk and the Samaritans at www.samaritans.org. They have help and support available if you need to talk. If you think a child is in immediate danger, dial 999. If you're a child who needs help, call Childline, and that's on 0800111. I'll say that again. That's 0800111. Before we end today, uh, Mike's been giving us his tunes from the past and explaining to us what they what they mean. But there's there's one special one that Mike actually asked us to put in. Um, tell us what it is and tell us why this is a, a special track to you, Mike. Yeah, it's, um, when I got involved with the Offside Trust, um, as I said before, we became, we, we referred to ourselves as a band of brothers because we, we shared a common experience. We, we stuck together and we campaigned together and uh, eventually the Football Starker Secret was the culmination of those campaigns. But initially we, we did um, a charity game against a team of ex-footballers and celebrities we thought nobody would come, but there was about three or four thousand people there. Um, all the kids from my team attended, all their parents, my dad, all my family. It was a really emotional day. And then just before we kicked off, um, Rowetta, the singer who used to sing with the Happy Mondays, came out and she sang this particular song. Um, and it's the first time I ever really listened to the words because I was stood in silence, arm in arm with, with these guys who'd been through what I'd been through. And I listened to the words and it's about... You can't change what's been and gone, but do something about it, your future, if you like. Um, don't cry, sort of, you know, put it behind you and move on and be positive. And it's become our sort of survivor's anthem, I think. So uh, I'd urge everyone to listen to the words and um, you know, take heart. Go on, introduce it then. It's um, called Stop Crying Your Heart Out by Oasis. This is Sound Radio Wales. My name's Jez Hemming. I've been in conversation with Mike Smith. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Really appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, allowing me the opportunity to talk. No problem.